What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. All right, welcome everybody back to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I am, uh, of course, joined by my amazing co-host, Miss Nina Baliga. Say hello. Hey, everyone. And Ubaldo, the myth, the legend, he is here with us today again. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. <laughs> uh, we are we are honored to be um, with a, with a great guest today, Mr. Ken Nakata. Uh, currently with Abgate. Uh Ken, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Ken, uh, please give me, uh, give, give our listeners just a couple of minutes of uh, your background, who you are, uh, social security number, all that good stuff. Okay, my friend? <laughs> okay. And my credit card number, right? And that works. Please, 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 please. <laughs> and yeah, that works. Right. That would be good. And your yeah. favorite whiskey drink. <laughs> or wine. No, no, I think you're no, a wine guy. Okay. Let's let's talk wine. Yeah, I am. Okay. Um, okay. Seriously though, um, I guess uh, well for the last uh, let me see twelve maybe fifteen years I've been working as a consultant um, in digital accessibility. But I guess what I'm really known for was before that I was working as a trial attorney as a senior trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Disability Rights Section. And when I first joined there. In 1992, I was, um, I guess I was maybe the third attorney to join the office. And so that was the very early days of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, just a couple of us were, you know, developing the policies and uh, doing litigation around the country um, under the ADA, um, trying to get businesses to become aware of basic accessibility requirements. Uh, and then in 1998, um, I guess about six years later, yeah, I ended up working on Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act, and that's the law that really requires that electronic and information technology that's used by the federal government has to be accessible. So that kicked off this whole movement towards, I, th I think it really kicked off this whole movement towards digital accessibility in a different way, because all of a sudden you had this law that um, had some teeth to it. Um, and now, even though it only affected the federal government, it still had a lot of impact on IT companies and the way in which they're developing their software or web developers and the way that they're developing their web pages. So then I left the Justice Department in 2004, and since then I've been, I've been mostly focusing on digital accessibility, but sometimes I, I go back to my traditional built environment accessibility roots. So can so I, that's pretty uh, much what I do. So, Ken, when Mike told me and you be that you would be joining our podcast, I have to be honest, I kind of geeked out. I usually geek out over tech. I never geek out over law. Um, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but no 508, I think, is just one of those. I mean, it's not only just like a landmark, you know, regulation in terms of like actually having a huge impact on people with disabilities. But it's also just one of those things like when you're a tech, you know, I, I used to do front end web development. I do UX design. And as a builder of technology, I mean, it's just such a key set of guidelines around how we should think about 
you know, how we build our technology itself. Um, I have to ask, I mean, it was, it was written so long ago and technology has changed so much since uh, you were originally writing all of that. I mean, did you anticipate, like, how did you think about how this law would hold up or how these regulations would hold up over, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years and even into the future when we all are driving space cars in the air and stuff? <laughs> yeah, so the original regulations weren't, weren't actually developed by me. They were developed by the Access Board. And uh, the Access Board is, this, is a small federal agency on F Street in Washington, D.C., and they have uh, the board of the access board um, is uh, divided roughly in half between federal agencies and private businesses and so private sector, I should say. And so I, I was designated by the Justice Department to work on Section 508. So I represented the Justice Department in the 508 rulemaking for for justice. But I was just one of the many voices, but justice tends to carry a fairly big, a fair, fair amount of weight in those discussions. So that was kind of my role in the 508 development. Um, the, we all knew that the technology, that technology was going to be quickly outpacing the speed at which we could write new regulations. And so the assumption was always that it would be flexible and that they'd have to rewrite the rules every now and again. And the latest iteration focuses, uh, points to um, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG uh, version 2.0. And um, that's, it, it was intended to do that because as WCAG evolved, it would be relatively easy then to update the regulation to point to a different version of WCAG. And I guess in retrospect, that made a lot of sense. Uh, back in 2000, when we were writing the original sections, by the way, we had 508 requirements, we had a slightly different perspective. We thought that WCAG was way too uh, wishy-washy, that it was too open to interpretation, and that Section 508 was a law that allowed federal agencies to be hauled into court and sued, and you don't want uh, that to be determined by something that's really in the eye of the beholder. It should be a black and white test in determining whether something, whether you're in violation whether you're in compliance or you're not in compliance. And so that was our focus when we were coming up with the original Section 508 regulations, was to create a fairly um, basic set of requirements that anybody could meet when they're developing their content. And it wasn't trying to achieve best practices. So this is kind of, one, this is one of those areas where it, that shapes my whole mentality towards civil rights um, and how we move forward in just about anything that that there's two ways you can do it you can either do it with a carrot or you can do it with a stick right if you're trying to try to convince a donkey to move along um i'm come from the compliance side mostly i'm not from the i'm not from the best practices side mostly and uh, that's why because as a lawyer that's just what the way my mind works but um, the goal is that you want to push people towards a basic level of compliance to make sure that, you know, that you catch all the, the stragglers and the people who don't want to, you know, that don't want to move towards accessibility. And then you also have to set up a system of best, uh, uh, encouraging people to achieve best practices. And so the rule is written in a way that accomplished that, that the, you have to do certain basic things. But then 
the way you you couldn't meet all of the Section 508 requirements. That wasn't really a reasonable expectation back in 2000 when the regs first came out. And so the way in which the law was written is that the federal agencies are required to choose a product that, quote-unquote, best meets the Section 508 requirements. So it gives them incentives to try and achieve higher and higher levels of accessibility until ultimately that becomes the base standard. So it's, 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 um, it's kind of a... Uh, a very clever approach that Congress used when they when they um, created this law that they gave us the opportunity to to do that. I so appreciate the that historic lens, uh, Ken, because I because you know meeting you um, uh, more recently in 2019, I you know you're you're currently so your 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 background your historical lens is the what to do right like so the Section 508 and even WCAG are all about the what to do. And now you very much uh, help organizations with the how to do that, how to meet that. Um, can you talk about, you know, really that uh, that really pretty unique um, uh, lens that you have? I mean, there, there's you're, you're one of, I don't know, maybe a couple of dozen people that have that very unique uh, lens of uh, from the what to the how kind of lens. Can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm not a technologist by any stretch of the imagination, but at least I say that myself. Some people say, oh, no, 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 you really are. But um, my background was, uh, before I even went to law school, you know, my background was, a, I, was I was a math major. And so uh, numbers and uh, and that way of looking at things, a very analytical way of looking at things, it's, it's pretty basic to me. Uh, my mom's an uh, architect, my dad's an engineer, so I was kind of raised to do that. And I don't know how the heck I ended up in law school, but uh, um, that that made me realize when I was in the Section 508 requirement, uh, helping with the Section 508 requirements, that there's, yeah, there is a very technical side to all of this. Um, and then there's the practical side of, you know, how do you actually put the pieces together and where do you put the priorities to make them fit in from a, from a legal perspective? And so, for instance, one of the things that I noticed was, um, with a lot of lawsuits that were happening early on with web accessibility, that there was a strong focus on some of the really basic things that, um, automated testing could come, could really help with. And it occurred to me that one of the reasons that why that might be happening is because the plaintiffs, as they are going to the attorneys, um, that that the plaintiffs' attorneys may very well be using automated scanning tools to scan a website, find out all the violations, you know, talk to the nominal plaintiff and say, "Are you? Do you see these same problems? Oh yeah, I've had those problems going to that website." And next thing you know, it ends up being a lawsuit. So some of the things that we recommended. Um, from a technical, from a legal perspective and a technical perspective to kind of combine them is, uh, to try and focus on some of those basic things that an automated testing tool can catch early from a risk avoidance perspective. You know, so if you're like one of the big, if you're a big e-retailer and you don't want to get hit by a drive-by plaintiff, that, that's one of the first things that you can do. And it also does have to improve accessibility a lot. Um, and then, you know, once you take care of that and get your accessibility statement in line, then come up with, okay, now how do we actually solve this problem, you know? And then there we get into, you know, the, the typical way in which a consultant does it. So manual testing your key use cases and things like that, you know, trying to figure out where the 
where the where a person from the public is most likely going to encounter a problem on your web page and then try to address those first and then use your lessons learned to expand that to the rest of your web content. So um, I guess that that's kind of an example of that balancing between technical and legal. Um, but sometimes it, you know, sometimes that technical is like, oh, okay, you want me to help you figure out these ARIA roles in, uh, in, uh, on your web page. Okay, fine. Um, I can help you with that, but I'm not really the guy you want to talk to about that, but I want, I can tell you about why you want to do that from, um, a risk avoidance perspective. I don't know if that answered your question, Mike. <laughs> no, that was great. Thank you, Ken. Um, I appreciate, I really do appreciate the, uh, you know, there's a, that, that balance of, uh, helping organizations first with the, you know, what, what needs to be done and then very, uh, systematically with the, you know, how to approach it, how to create a roadmap. Um, uh, and again, it, it, it's my opinion that accessibility and making digital uh, products accessible um, is, yes, it's written very specifically for uh, uh, persons with disabilities. However, my opinion is that uh, um, when digital platforms are made accessible, um, they actually become better platforms overall to all consumers. I'd love to get your 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 lens on that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, people people kick and scream about the idea of accessibility, but ultimately, these things have huge benefits uh, to everyone. Um, like I was playing around with this whole COVID scare, for instance. Um, I've been asked to, you know. Uh, well, everybody in my company has been asked to work remotely. And so we're trying to use um, web conferencing software. Um, and our company's other branches of our company are heavily focused on Microsoft Office. And so we are too. And so we use Microsoft Teams. And one of the things that I noticed in Teams was that if you, uh, if you have a video conference in Teams, it it record and record it. Um, it creates a transcript of the entire meeting, so you can do text searches within that. And from a use from just a general usability perspective, that's fantastic. So if I wasn't if I wasn't able to attend that meeting that three of my coworkers had this afternoon, that's okay. I could just you know go into Teams and and look at the um, shared meeting and and do a text search for my name to figure out every time somebody mentioned my name. Um, but originally, of course, that was an accessibility feature. That was intended to help address the captioning needs for deaf users because um, Microsoft had developed previously that technology so that it uses this, um, um, their uh, AI technology to provide um, captioning on uh, in a real-time web conference and then they also leverage that to create real-time translations so if you're a french speaker and you're you're watching a presentation that's uh, that's given in english you can still understand everything that's being said but those other applications the language translation and the being able to text search that you so find my name after so find out every time that somebody mentioned my name during that meeting those are all accessibility features originally intended for the deaf community. So little things like that. I just, I, I'm just amazed. I, I think that the rest of the, all of mankind that aren't, the people that aren't disabled are these 
unintended beneficiaries of technology that was originally intended for people with disabilities. Like speech output on a GPS, the things that we use whenever we drive anywhere nowadays, because we're all reliant on GPS in our cars. Um, yeah, that's that speech output wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the needs of people with disabilities were pioneered way, way, way long ago. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd like to take a step back, Ken, from the tech speak, uh, specifically because uh, I recently watched this uh, documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. Um, I was telling Mike and Yubi about it. Mm, Have yeah. you heard about it or watched it? Oh, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So just for our listeners, uh, I strongly recommend watching it. Essentially what it is is it tells the story of a handful of individuals who went to this summer camp that was for people with disabilities. Um, and these were folks with various disabilities. They obviously built bonds while at that summer camp, but they ended up becoming this generation of activists that led the entire movement or were leaders in the movement of creating, um, you know, uh, civil rights and human rights um, and, you know, actually changing the legislation that led to, um, you know, Congress putting out legislation to protect people with disabilities. And so it's about a, it's about a civil rights movement. It's about a social justice movement. And it's just an incredible uh, story of, uh, of a handful of individuals uh, involved in that. Um, I think one of the interesting things about that, Ken, was just kind of talking about the intersectionality of how people of different uh, underrepresented groups, people of color um, specifically, were aligning themselves with these individuals with disabilities and supporting and helping them, um, you know, given that they, you know, were kind of afforded rights earlier in the 1960s, whereas it almost it took to the 1990s before the communities with disabilities were even kind of recognized in the same way. I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on from that legal perspective as you were doing this trial, like how how did that impact it? How did like these other underrepresented communities and laws that were about providing equal rights to other disenfranchised groups, how did that impact the work that you did? Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at chooseinclusion.